Welcome back, everyone. This is Eric Ellison with the Digital Education Podcast, and happy 2023. As we uh, head into this new year, I thought, what an incredible way to start off the new year with the conversation about disrupting school rituals. And so I'm with Dr. Eric DeMolinaire, and Eric is a professor at Clark University in Worcester, Massachusetts. And then we have a lot in common, but I don't want to waste time on, on those commonalities and those, those places where we've lived and spent time. But Eric, tell us a little bit more about yourself and then how you got interested in this idea of school rituals, disrupting the school rituals, this study, and I'll link it to the podcast, this study, and then this class, which I believe is called Roots and Rituals. Roots and Roots. Yep. Roots and Roots. Okay. Um, or Roots and Routes, however you want to pronounce the last one. Um, so thank you. Super excited to be here with you, Eric, and excited to share a little bit about this. Just to give you, a, maybe I can do a backwards story to talk about how this course came about and and how this article came about. Um, and and so it, it connects a lot to, you know, I moved after being a teacher in the Bay Area in San Francisco and Oakland for many years and then starting a school for social justice in Oakland where I was the principal. Um, I left that work and became a teacher educator at Clark and was working with a lot of teachers who were who were green starting in the field interning and they would read all these amazing social justice educators critical pedagogues culturally relevant teaching all this and get super excited and then they'd write their lesson plans to do work that was about oh i'm going to be a critical pedagogue i'm going to do this in culture and they would go in and spend all this time in their lesson plans their unit plans and go into these high schools where i was supervising them and the students would just resist them right and and would be like who are you who do you think you are right and they were like i'm writing this lesson for you like i'm all on your side why are you fighting me and and so it made me realize that a lot of this research that we have and a lot of the scholars who inspire me as well write at this level of after trust has been established so you have these beautiful classroom scenarios where the kids are the students are doing really amazing work and they're all together and so you know we've and i read these you know we read a book in wipar about these amazing experiences the students have project-based learning and everything and the students in my MAT program are similarly inspired and that's and and so they couldn't understand why are the students resisting and so part of what I wanted to do with this article it actually grew out of an earlier article which I call toward a pedagogy of trust and sort of like how do we think about how we establish the trust necessary to get to those amazing spaces of culturally relevant teaching and critical pedagogy because you can't do culturally relevant teaching if the students are not listening or rejecting the classroom, right? And I talk a lot about the fact that, you know, particularly as like uh, middle class and almost and all educators by virtue of their education, all are middle class, but also when you're crossing distances around race and gender and age and all these things, like we should assume distrust and there has to be work to create trust. And so in the article, toward a pedagogy of trust, I sort of outlined and tried to frame what I identified as six areas uh, that help foster that trust. And so the first one out of that 
which was this research on the same class was the use of community rituals. And so in this article, what I tried to do on disrupting school rituals is really dive into that. My original plan, although this is a long process, is to sort of write this as a book, but thinking about rituals to me um, became really profound because what I realized is so many classrooms, teachers go in and wanna create new relationships and new ways of connecting with students, and yet they use the traditional school practices, which we don't usually call them as rituals, but if we think about them, drawing on both Goffman and Foucault's kind of framing of rituals, if we think about the school practices as ritualized and believe with Goffman that those ritual practices actually shape the nature of how we interact and relate to each other, then you can't create socially just and transformative relationships with students and impose the traditional rituals of schooling, which are rooted in domination and power and hierarchical relationships. And so that was sort of what I was exploring in this class. And what we found was, you know, and it was interesting to watch, like the students we taught, it was a, it, we basically took almost the entire senior class in this small school. And which include, and it was a heavily tracked school. I don't know how they had so many tracks with only about, I mean, in part, the reason we could take the whole senior class was there was a lot of attrition of students in the school. So the senior class wasn't that big, but um, the, um, but the students came from all the different tracks. So we had the valedictorian in the class and we had students who barely graduated and were deep involved in a lot of street life. And, um, and so, yeah, so that was kind of the, the genesis of it. Um, and so, and this was like my second year at Clark, I was feeling deeply removed from schools my first year. And so I was like, I was like, let's, you know, I wanted to get involved. So I was working with a group of teachers. We were reading, we we're doing a critical inquiry group reading Frary, and they were all excited about it. But at the end of the year, they were like, Eric, let's do this for real. And I'm like, what do you mean? And they're like, let's co-teach a class to try to enact all this critical pedagogy. And I was like, first of all, your principal's not going to want me to do that. And second, <laughs> so I was like, if you can make it happen, I'm I'm open to thinking about it. And they made it happen. And so we were like, oh my goodness, I have to do that. So that was really intense. It was my second year uh, at Clark. But then I taught literally every day I was heading to the school that was a few blocks from Clark. Um, so it was a really fun and exciting time working with the students. Um, but yeah, that was the genesis of it. It's incredible. I mean, and it is, it's, it's something that I've thought about for, I think, you know, or, or it's kind of emerged in my own thinking and wondering, and even my own practice over the course of probably 17 years now, where I got to spend some time in Boston in an urban place where we started a school too. And we're, we're thinking about these things and it is the discovery. We're trying to do something new, but we're trying to jam it into, you know, these old practices. And it, and it was so much for me, those were the the realities that I discovered for myself as a, you know, as a young school leader and educator of, you know, when we talk about classroom management, it really was about rituals and, you know, even a, in a religious term that you tied to it in some ways is the liturgies of what we create and what we do in a lot of ways to people. So I, I would love for you before maybe even talking about the specifics of like, you know, some of the, the things that you pull out from the class that, that maybe might help people think, but I would love for you just to, to share a little bit, because you talk about it in the article itself, you know, this idea of 
power. And I think there is some of it, like how do we dispositionally put ourselves as leaders and as educators and as teachers and, and people who have positional power, how do we, in a sense, give up power through the changing of rituals? But then how do we invite people in to be empowered in that? Because I think about it, I was a really, really good young teacher, but because I dominated. You know, I dominated my classroom. I set the standard. I was, you know, I would have been a really good football coach. Um, but but it, but then the realization of like, that's that's not the way I want to do things, right? This is not the the nature of the flourishing that I was even looking for. So what would be your, just even those practical things when you're talking to educators, you're talking to teachers, you're talking to school leaders, the giving up and the inviting in, of those those power dynamics to to then move into some of these places well i mean i guess i would say i power is always enacted in classrooms um and i think both students and teachers have power in different ways i think what the rituals lens offers is a way of of thinking about power and and exposing it more explicitly. So I'm not against there being differences in power, um, but I also think it's really important to recognize the ways that power gets manifest and it often gets manifested in these kind of ritualized ways that are not um, made explicit, right? And so everything from like how people are named and so you know Goffman writes about this extensively like when you walk up to somebody and refer to them by their surname or or their first name or if you call people sugar or hunt right all those little moves are are demarcating kind of power and relational power in a space um the way people dress uh the way the way we organize the space who's standing who's sitting right um who has control over who can go to the bathroom when right like all those things are like explicitly about power but we rarely talk about them in explicit ways and they enact in these kind of subtle ways and so for me it's not so much trying to um deny kind of the power I have as a teacher in the classroom, but it's about trying to cope, bring to the fore what those are. And if we want to, I mean, I do this really interesting activity with my students to think about power that I learned from my mentor, Margot Okazao-Ray, and, and they, um, I give them all a piece of paper in a group of four, and I, they have their finger and thumb on it. And I say, the paper represents power. What do you do? And what I find is with my pre-service teachers, when they do that, they all kind of freak out and they're like, oh my gosh, I have, I, what does that mean? I don't know what to do with this. Some people let go. And then once in a while you have the, the student who I always appreciate, he just grabs all the paper, you know? And so you just, um, and I do that as a little simulation, but it's kind of like, we, it's interesting to me, we talk a lot about power. And when I bring it up, people see it in a sort of negative light. And yet when we use the word empowerment, people see that in a pretty positive way, which is about somehow, and I don't know how you give people power, right? Because that implies you have it to give. Um, but I think we need to sort of 
rethink about our relationship to power and be conscious of it because, you know, and um, Martin Luther King has this great speech where he talks about kind of this juxtaposition between love and power. And he's like, we've got it wrong. And he identifies power with Nietzsche and he identifies love with Jesus and, and says in these, you know, but what the problem is, is that Nietzsche was about power apart from love and that love often gets coded as being power, it being um, kind of anemic and lacking of any power, right? And what, you know, he argues is that justice is really when we bring love and power together. Uh, so I think, you know, part of this is maybe a reconverse, a, a redefinition or rethinking of what we mean by power, um, and then also being really explicit about it, but then also really thinking about what happens. So, you know, one of the stories I tell in the article is about a conflict where Students were, you know, we were, we did this activity where we climbed a mountain and at the end, and it was kind of this really euphoric celebratory space. And next thing I know, uh, one of the co-teachers who convinced me to teach this class with him comes up to me. He's like, Eric, several of the students have just like tagged up this like lookout thing. And I was like, what do you mean? And, and one of the students who is like, was not the student you would have assumed in this class. I mean, we had kids who were like gangbangers and everything who were probably busy tagging all over in Worcester. This was like an honor student who was like super quiet and sweet, had brought this magic marker, was writing her name and several other students did it too. And so I was like, oh my God, we're gonna get shut down. What does this mean? And I didn't know what to do in that moment. Uh, and I think that's the other thing that happens, right? Is like. I think educators, teachers are often asked to make hundreds of decisions every day. And a lot of times we get it right, but you can't get it right all the time. One of the things I learned when I was a principal is like, when you don't know the answer, stall and just say, we're going to give everybody time. And so I was like, let's just go back to the vans at the bottom of the hill. We climbed back down and I was like talking with my co-teacher, like, what should we do? What should we do? I don't know what to do with this. Um, and I was like, let's get out of here before the ranger arrests us or whatever. And um, we got down to the hill and I did, you know, the move where it made it look like I knew what I was doing, which I didn't. And we circled up and I said, I just wanted to let you know what happened at the top of the hill. I'm going to ask you not to talk about it. We'll talk about it in class when we get back. But I want you to think about it and think about what our response should be, which I have learned is a really good stall tactic because everyone's like, ooh, we need to, and then they actually get nervous and start thinking about it. And and then I, you know, but I think for me, the other thing was, you know, we could have done what often happens is when you don't know what to do, you rely on the traditional practices. I mean, this is why people learn new pedagogical practices, but when they don't work, they just kind of go back to what they were given their whole lives. Similarly, when we didn't know what to do in terms of this moment, right, this moment, I call it a moment of conflict, right, but in schools we see this as a, as a, a moment of, of bad behavior or disciplinary moment, right, in terms of using Foucault's language. Um, and so we decided to to just come in that class and decide collectively what we could do and, and expressed our concern. And, you know, for me, it was educative because some of the students who were involved in writing their names were like, I don't see the problem with it. Like kids in the, kids in the, in the country, you know, we read in book, they write their, they carve their names on trees all the time. And that scene is like a quaint thing to do. We're in nature, you know, they were, do, they were doing their sort of version of, and I was like, okay, I didn't think about it that way. I mean, to me, this was like tagging and, 
Um, and so I had to like process some of that, but I was like, what should we do? And they, and the students were like, well, we'll just go and tell the principal and just deal with whatever the consequences are. And, and so we had a conversation about like, well, is that what we should do? And what does it make sense? And, and then we spent some time thinking about, well, what, what, what's right and wrong, what's problematic about this. And, you know, and some of the students were not convinced that it was really bad to have a tag <laughs> marked up there. It was just their names, you know, and it was celebrating a moment for them. But several of the students felt like it was horrible and they were really ashamed to be associated with a class that had done this. So, you know, that's when we kind of collectively came up with the solution that the people who were involved in tagging would buy the cleaning supplies and we would go all together. And well, it was only going to be the people who did it and that some of the teachers were going to drive up there and clean it. Um, but that in and of itself, and then several other students came. So we just did a car pull up there with about like, I'd say about 10 of the students um, and all three of us teachers. And then we all cleaned it together collectively and tried to, and we talked about like, how do we restore the wrong versus sort of create punishment for punishment's sake to sort of enact power. And that's one of the things that I write a little bit about in terms of the disciplining moment in terms of Foucault and sort of oftentimes our punishment rituals in school, and we call it discipline, but I don't think it's discipline. I think it's punishment. Our punishment rituals are really about reenacting power and usually connected with what Foucault writes about with the prison system is it's usually about exclusion, right? We kick people out of class, we kick people out of school for periods of time and stuff. And then we never do anything to resolve the conflict in the first place or to actually restore, in this case, a space, but also mostly it's usually about restoring relationships. And so, you know, I feel like I've gone off on a tangent, but. But, but I think it, it, it connects because there's, there's so many interesting things in here, right? Because part of, part of the, the name of the course, right, is roots. And I'll use my Midwestern accent, right? Routes, right? So the roots and the routes, right? Right. So, and, and part of that is like, and I, and I love the mountain climb story, the vignette about the mountain climb story, and then how this kind of experience in this vignette came out of that story is that part of part of this work is that you're walking this route together like in some of these rituals is there is a pathway to walk and then you walk it together and there is a like i, I think a figure it out you know as you're on that journey together too cuz cuz i think about it you know just from the bay area i think about one of the big mountaintop experiences here in the bay area everybody takes a marker with them and, and tags, there's a pole up there and tags their name with the on the pole. But, you know, it's not a rock. It's not a stone. It's it, but it is, you know, kind of. And so I'm reading I'm reading that vignette and I'm thinking like, oh, yeah, they, they, they felt accomplished. They felt they, they wanted to leave their mark. And I'm thinking about like where I go hiking and people do it all the time. But it is that place that then how do you unravel it and have that conversation of like, is this appropriate for this place or and for this situation? But I'm interested in the class because you share a couple other vignettes. You know, you share about the first day of of, of school and, and even thinking about doing it different. Um, you share about the altar experience and doing it different. And even that mountain climb was was meant to be a ritual that was, you know, to disrupt the maybe the stagnation of what just happens in the classroom. Mm -hmm. can, can you give us a little bit more like, you know, I don't know, detail or just even explanation of like some of these or maybe one of them, you know, one of these rituals to get people thinking about how they might even disrupt 
the rituals of their own classroom and of their own school and of their own work. Yeah, and and I and I was trying to be pretty cautious in the article because I feel like I'm advocating for rituals of disruption, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we lead that leads to new relation. Like it, it disrupts, which I think I argue makes a liminal space, which creates an opportunity for something new. And I'm not sure we fully figured out how to create all the new, but I think we got pretty good at disrupting. Um, and we decided from early on that we wanted to to do something different in this course. I mean, that was the whole premise. Like the teachers were like, like I think at reading what we had read together in a read in a kind of a critical inquiry group at, with a group of teachers were really at least a few of them were really inspired and wanted to try something different because they just felt like they were going through the same motions. And these were two teachers who were really popular at the school and the students loved them, but they felt like they were just, it, it, they didn't feel like they were doing anything that transformative, right? Um, and so part of what we did, and, you know, and so a lot of this is me reflecting afterwards with them, uh, but for whatever reason, and I think, you know, we just, it was our teacher and English teacher and myself, and we just said, we're going to do something special. And so, but for whatever reason, we decided we were going to do, to be special, we had to be disruptive in the beginning. We kind of had to shake them up. And I think the opening scene that I sort of frame is kind of the way students came in. And I was like an unknown, you know, I had been in some of these classrooms and observed because I had student teachers there, um, but the students didn't really know me that well, but the students knew they were all seniors. That's what the principal agreed to because she was like, get them ready for college or whatever. So we were supposed to help them write college statements and stuff. Um, but on the first day, we didn't want it to be the same old, same old. And yet, you know, in the opening, you can see kind of these ritual moves that teachers and students do, right? So the students were all, and these are seniors, it's a small school, so they all know each other. So you can imagine the first day of school, and this is like, you know, we had planned to start at a certain time, but of course the way typical, I don't know if this is true in all schools, but all the urban schools I've been in, um, they start an advisory to get their classes. And of course the schedule's all jacked up. And so people end up staying in advice. They're supposed to be there 30 minutes. It ends up being two hours in advisory. So all the classes were starting later that day. So what we had planned for originally being like a 50 minute class ended up being like a 30 minute class because everybody got scrunched and we got pushed to the back um so but you know in between the passing period before i can't remember what period we were like second or third but it ended up being like 11 that day um and they were all milling outside and kind of doing their typical thing the bell rings to send them into class and of course the students you know some of them were in the seats some weren't um but they were you know and then some kind of slowly saunter in um, you know, I think some are waiting to be cajoled in, right? There's that little kind of like, we're going to push against, we're going to resist a little bit. We're not going to be in your face, you know, especially on the first day, they'll usually go along with it, but we're not going to show you any enthusiasm, right? And so they came into the classroom and we purposely said, even though we didn't have as much time as we had originally planned, we purposely said we were going to take the first class and just kind of sit in darkness at the beginning. And so part of what we did is we didn't necessarily know how to create new rituals. We just knew we wanted to avoid 
the traditional ones of come in, take role, whatever the traditional thing, go through your syllabus or go through the rules or whatever you do on the first days of classes. We want to do something that would just kind of disrupt that. So we made our room dark. We pulled all the blinds down. We had at the back wall, of, this is back with the overhead projectors even, you know, that that's how well, the school is just not very technically savvy. We had to put up sheets to do a like slide projection. Um, and so we had on the back wall, a statement that's like, why are you here? And we meant that in all levels, like, and and the students didn't even know how they got assigned to this class because it was all done over the summer. The class read sociology. There was no roots and roots in the system. Um, and so they were all assigned to sociology. They're like, what the hell is this? <laughs> They're in this class looking at each other. They walk into a dark room and the seats were in kind of a circle, but a messy circle um, with a like, but there was a little circle in the middle that we were kind of making as like a, a, the a theater in the round, if you will. And so we borrowed, I think, traditions from like theater and places of worship, not because that's what we thought was the key, but only because they were different and they offered something that was somewhat different than what we saw as school rituals. Um, and so, and then the bell rang to start class and we just stood in the corner over by the window talking to each other quietly and trying not to even look at the students. And the students were kind of all talking and catching up and what's happening for the summer. But after a while, it gets kind of quiet because, you know, like big rooms, there's like a lull that just sort of happens in the conversation. And then people start looking around like, what's going on? And meanwhile, there's it's dark and there's a screen in the back saying, why are you here? And the screen on the side is like, we could so one of our goals at the end of the week was everyone's going to create a list of like the things they wanted to do in their lives this was sort of thinking about the roots forward um but we each of the teachers had done that and made a list and then that was the slideshow it was a list of our bucket list kind of items um and so that was playing and so after a few minutes in the darkness and the students start looking around some of them are paying attention to what's on the screens um chad one of the teachers i changed i think i changed the name i can't remember um uh, went to the center and just read a story that he had written about his father and him in a conversation and his father had left his family uh, after his mother had gotten sick, you know, and so it was this really kind of painful personal story, which, you know, teachers don't usually share. <laughs> and so he just started there and he read the story and kind of in a shaking hand, his hands were shaking a little bit, tilted the paper down, looked at the class and kind of pointed with the paper at the sign in the back and said, this is in part why I'm here, which was enigmatic. I don't know what he meant by that, <laughs> but it was just kind of confusing. And then we did a whole different set. I went and told a story about being a teacher in Oakland. And then that my colleague, the art teacher came and basically just gave all the students handmade books that she had made for each of them and that was our first class and it just ended and she's like but bring the books back tomorrow i can't remember and we gave him permission slips to go on the field trip and then we wanted to do the field trip that was a tuesday we started friday we were going to the mountain to do the mountain climb and so we just kind of jumped in and we created the books and so all these things were like somewhat disruptive i don't know if it matters what we do as long as it doesn't feel traditional um, so that you can then create the space. And I don't want to mislead people to think that like the class was suddenly like gelled after a week, you know, and everything was beautiful. It was messy. I mean, I could actually 
go continue on. And there was like, you could just see students who like shifted their trust. At one point we had one of the kind of student leaders who, who I wrote about, I think in, in the other piece, but um, who, who on the mountain thing helped like students up and just like totally changed. He was like seen as like a gang leader in the community and stuff like that, but was like, became a huge leader in the class. And so when he, when you, you could almost see his shift when he came on board, he actually read a book for the first time ever in our class and stuff. And, and suddenly he, he brought so many other people because they're like, oh, if he's going to buy into this, then so many other people came. So I, th- you know, but that didn't happen in the first week. There was this suspicion and distrust, I think, for a while, um, you know, and I think they, um, but it was interesting to watch because there was these liminal spaces over and over again where they're kind of like, what the hell is going on here, right? Um, it's so. it's so interesting because it is. It's like you, what you're trying to do is take, and, and I love the point about the disruption, right? The disruption wasn't just to disrupt. It was to maybe create something new. Um, you know, it is that interesting place that uses the term roots as the first part of this class. Like, what are the connected points? What are the rootedness? How do we root ourselves to each other, to our stories, right? To the past, to others that have come before us, you know, and and then and then this route, you know, the the roots that you go on, the 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 and then how do we create the rituals that that guide us in that process? I was thinking about this as you were talking and as you were sharing some of this. It was an interesting conversation I had recently about a school that I had the opportunity to be a principal of, and we, we kind of did a bunch of disruptive sort of rituals. Like we took what was normative and we just started to get rid of all of them. And I got a call from somebody and they said, hey, this isn't working. And I'm like, well, like the point of it was to only work for a period of time because I was only there for four years. And now we're talking about this is 14 years later. And <laughs> And I'm like, that was not meant to be something that was supposed to last for long term. That was something that was meant to be short term to get us out of these places. Maybe as we close out, what would be your encouragements to school leaders, to educators to say, hey, you know what, like if you do have school rituals or if you do have rituals that create those deep roots, double down and keep them because they're necessary. Right. And then and then what would be your encouragement in some ways as people kind of think about the creative messiness of Mm. disrupting and creating new rituals? Because you kind of get to that a little bit, that there's the messiness in this that you have to be comfortable with as the adult or as the teacher or as the school leader. Yeah, I mean, you have you have to want a different kind of relationship. So obviously, I think the. The thing to figure out is if you have the relationships you want in your school, what are you doing ritualistically that enables that, right? So what what are you doing that fosters and creates those rituals? And if you're not having it, what are the rituals that are fostering um, problematic relationships, right? And, And for me, it was all about sort of thinking about the complexity of creating, you know, borrowing kind of Freire's idea of how do we create more horizontal relationships, right? And recognizing that I'm a learner. I mean, I remember my first time teaching, I felt like I had to know everything, right? When I was a student teacher, I remember I had my students reading Catcher in the Rye, I think, and my one of my students was like, I don't get it. Are we supposed to like Holden? And I was like, I don't know the answer to that one. And then I felt really stressed. And I was like, 
oh man um and i felt like i had to know everything and you know so we we create these things and and even the teachers i was working with were like why did we learn that we had to be so distant from our students right there was like and it was like no one explicitly said like don't be close or whatever but there was this some sense of like you can't have close caring intimate relationships with your students in you know and i and i sort of say well, like you're not their mom you're not their dad but like you can be an uncle right like like and and there's this some notion i think that that gets imbued in teacher education that says like you lose authority by being close but like as a parent i had authority over my kids and yet i was super close to them and so i think that you know for it was interesting because they felt like they had relationships with their students they never had. I mean, one of the disrupting rituals that I didn't write about is we did home visits. We divided up and we each took a third of the class and we each went and visited their homes. And the reason I do that, and you know, because people think it's it's problematic to do home visits. And I, and I get that on one level and I never force myself to go into a student's home. But what I wanted the teachers to experience and what I think teachers gain from that is like teachers are so used to being caregivers and taking care of others. And there's a power dynamic in that, right? When you are giving, you have power, right? And when you're receiving, there's a humility. And so what I wanted, more importantly in the home visits, I mean, you get to develop relationships with the parents, which is really important. Um, but you also, you know, I mean, I visited one family and they gave me some Albanian shots of whatever and it was like a very masculine it was the grandfather and the father and me doing these shots and the women were over so i you know there's all kinds of problematic things around gender and stuff that i don't want to get it but it was like you you have to be humble and and receive their hospitality which i think is a re really transformative because you know to have the students take care of you and i remember learning this in, in going to cuba that that they have this thing where they do, they call schools in the countryside. And so they would disrupt things and literally the whole school would go and go to school in the countryside and they would help with the revolution to farm or whatever. Um, but what it did is it put the teacher side by side with the student learning from a farmer what how to pick the plants or milk the cows or whatever they had to do. And they were both equal. And so the authority invested in the teacher, what happens there is your authority is not based on you being older or whoever. It's because when you're teaching history, you know more history or something, and you have some training to guide. And so your authority is actually rooted in, a, in an authority that matters, right? And so this is trying to get to this notion of power again, and like, what's the basis of being an authority, right? You know, and and in that situation, when the farmer had the authority and really the power and knowledge that was important and the teacher and students are more on an equal level. And we don't create enough of those spaces where we disrupt these hierarchies and think about what's the underlying roots of the hierarchy. So as much as you can, I think, create those spaces, go visit homes of family. I mean, I remember when I first started teaching, I would go to the grocery store, run into my students and they'd be like, my teacher's here. Oh my God. And they'd all freak out. And I'm like, 
and they look at you like, oh my God, you eat, right? Like, you know, and it's like, we don't have these spaces of being human. And, and for me, actually the most powerful moments were like the drives to the mountain in the van and the field trips and going to a ropes course and like the downtime sitting and eating together. Like we don't have enough of those spaces where it's not in a preset hierarchy. And so then the hierarchy lacks legitimacy and authority because it's it seems omnipresent uh, rather than temporal and rooted based on on knowledge and expertise. If that makes sense, oh, it makes a hundred percent sense, and and I love it. And so much of that resonates even with, I think, in a lot of ways, who I've become and what I desire. And you know, and even as you you talk about that, I think. I love the perspective that you gave of just having a different vision for relationships. Cause, cause you probably grew up, you know, through like the teacher prep stuff where it was like, don't smile till Christmas or whatever right, it was yeah. till Thanksgiving. And it's like, why, why? And you make a great point. Like, why are we so afraid to have these close relationships, these close connections? Yes, we aren't this and this, but we can be, and we are this. And, you know, and so how do we create that space? And we're maybe not going to be that for everyone. And I, I just one last question, because because I, I think this is something that I really love. Um, t- talk about like the essential nature, and maybe this is where we close it out. Is the essential nature of that you did this with three leaders, right? So it wasn't just me, right? Or it wasn't just me running this class as the, as the teacher, but there were three of us, and so in a lot of ways. There had to be some like as in in a lot of ways, them watching the three of you work it out together. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the irony and I and I've written elsewhere about this is like. We also got a target on our backs, like all the other teachers didn't really appreciate us. Mm -hmm. And I think this happens a lot in schools when you take the kids that others have deemed uneducable and they mm-hmm. suddenly start to do amazing stuff then there's a lot of like narrative that happens about like well, why and so one of the stories was always like well they got three teachers right mm-hmm. we would have success if we could have three teachers in our classroom and stuff but actually it was a lot more i mean if you've ever co-taught before mm-hmm. co-teaching is way more work than teaching by yourself um and so we had to meet a lot and and divide and conquer and um and we learned a lot and we made a lot of mistakes. Um, I don't want, you know, we went and shared some of these things in conferences and Chad was always good. Like, you don't, I don't want you to think that we're some superstars here. Like we messed up a lot. There were a lot of flaws. There was a lot of apologizing, um, but we got real enough that the students could check us in ways that I haven't had happen a lot in other classrooms. Um, and so maybe in part, it helped us by giving us permission to make mistakes with each other. Um, and I think we, because we were sort of trying to, you know, there's an accountability to say, we're going to do something different. And so you you show up and you don't result, rely on kind of your, your past knowledge and experiences. You sort of show up because you're like, the other two people might call me out on that stuff. So there was a great kind of support accountability that happened there. Um, but it was also tricky in terms of the power dynamics, like, you know, I remember we had a scenario where somebody um, came forward and this is what happens when you develop close relationships. And we found out about a kind of uh, a, an abusive relationship parent wise and like, and the teacher was like, how do I deal with this? Well, I'm a mandated reporter. What do I need to do? And, um, and, and so, you know, 
we sort of had some conversations and like, we're like, well, you have to report this to your principal and, and whoever else. Um, but then we also have to think about how do we maintain relationships mm -hmm. because we had relationships with both of those parents at that point too. And so like, the, it's trickier when you're in relationship with people and shit goes down, <laughs> like yeah. how do you navigate that? And, and I remember him sort of really struggling, you know, what do I do? What is my role? And so, you know, um, and, and, you know, I think, he got, he, he made choices that the principal didn't like. And so he got under fire for some of those moves. Um, but, but, you know, I think in the end, it was a profound experience for all three of us. Um, and, and, you know, and I have continued to work with both of them, even though one of them has moved away. Um, and so, yeah, there's a certain level of intimacy that happens when you share a classroom for sure. Um, and it can be really good or it can be really, uh, not good, <laughs> yeah. uh, depending, uh, but I, I don't know if that gets at what you were no. saying, but definitely yeah. there's this like, um, level of trust that you have to have when you're co-teaching. And, but I also think like, there's this, you know, the classroom space is like an intimate space in the sense that like, it's a space rooted in failure, right? Like we, teachers make so many mistakes. Again, when you're making a hundred plus decisions every day, and students are being asked to strive and be told how to be do better, right? Like that's, I mean, there's a reason why students are like resistant. Like you can give me a, a bad grade after a while, but if I keep trying, that's kind of foolish on my part. And so, but we wanted to create a culture in a classroom where students actually strived. And, and that's part of, that's part of shifting the ritual. Like what would make somebody actually try in an environment, which usually teaches you, to not try and to, because if you try and fail, that is a lot more painful than if you don't try and fail. And so um, how do we actually think about the relationship to failure, which is a whole, so I, I've been talking a lot about like reclaiming the word discipline, but I think we need to reclaim the word failure in education as well, because I think it's such an ugly word. And in fact, what learning is all about is failing and making mistakes and growing from those mistakes. And so how do we get to a level of intimacy and relationships where we can do that? And that's what I think launched a lot of this work was like, how do we get to real authentic learning spaces? Um, and that's not easy because it's really like, how, who in your life are you in relationship with where you talk about your mistakes and failures, right? And that's what teachers are asking students to do all the time. And so there's a reason why there's this distrust and distance. And so, um, but yeah, so I think that, that that relationship with failure was really profound to be with three teachers who we all were able to be honest about like our own insecurities as teachers, um, which we don't usually do, right? And so that, that was profound for me. Uh, it's Eric. I, I do. I appreciate your thoughts, your wisdom, your the stories, the the experience that you've given to us, and and just even these promptings. I mean, I, it resonates with me. I think I probably could talk to you all day, but um, <laughs> that'll come. Later. We won't do that so, to the listeners. Yeah, yeah. So, Eric, hey, happy New Year! Thank you so happy much. Happy New Year to you. Yeah, and hopefully, people listen and think about ways to disrupt. And I, if you hear back, I'd love to hear back from you. Uh, of things people are trying to do because it could be something we can keep thinking about. Well, we'll do number two and we'll do it like in the summer to really kind of push people to think about starting their school year different. Yeah, that sounds great. And that's kind of what I focus on was just the first week or so. Um, but we we did some things in the beginning. But of course, 
once you have trust established, you don't need to, as you indicated with the school, keep disrupting, you know, and then you're trying to build something new rather than disrupting something that's old, you know. Yeah. Thanks, Eric. All right. Take care, Eric. Thank you so much.